Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast with your host, Andrew Keel. This is the podcast where you can get the education you need to invest 100% passively in the highly profitable niche of mobile home parks. Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast. This is your host, Andrew Keel. And today we have one of America's largest mobile home park owner operators and one of my mentors, Mr. Jefferson Lilly from Park Avenue Partners, back on the show after almost three years since our previous recording, which was back on episode number 33. Before we dive into that, though, I want to ask you all a real quick favor. Would you mind please taking an extra 30 seconds to head over to iTunes and rate this podcast with five stars? This helps us get more listeners, and it literally means the world to me. I literally check these reviews daily. I'm just super passionate about it. So thanks for making my day with that review of the show. All right, let's dive in. Jefferson is a mobile home park investing expert and educator. He is the general partner at Park Avenue Partners, and he has acquired over 43 mobile home parks in 15 different states since 2007. That's totaling over $81 million in asset value. He started the industry's first podcast and the largest group on LinkedIn dedicated to investing in mobile home parks. He holds a BA from the University of Pennsylvania and an MBA from the Wharton School of Business. Jefferson, welcome back on the show. Andrew, thank you. Great to be back. I can't believe it's been three years. Time flies when you're having fun. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I know uh, you were a speaker at the SECO conference back in September. And that was really awesome. I loved your session on valuing mobile home parks in 2023. You know, maybe we can start there. You know, interest rates have gone up. You know, maybe you could just touch a little bit on kind of what's changed in the mobile home park investing world. I would say the biggest change has has been the, the rise in interest rates. You know, fundamentally, there's still all the same demand for affordable housing, and it's still hard to find, you know, good employees. You know, that hasn't changed, but the cost of money sure has. We've seen some some change in pricing up, you know, sorry, up, upwards uh, cap rate revisions, downward pricing on, on some deals. But I certainly wouldn't say the market, uh, the sellers have capitulated. We continue to see some, uh, you know, very mediocre deals, <laughs> small towns, private utilities from brokers that are saying, you know, okay, now it's a five and a half cap instead of a five. <laughs> we just, you know, like can't can't make that work when our cost of capital is now, you know, something over at or over 7%. Anyway, but that said, we have made two acquisitions this year. And I believe we made, it was, I think, three right at the, uh, sorry, I think it was four right at, right at the end of last year. So that's all been during the period of higher interest rates. So we paid cash uh, for a couple of the three of those five properties. We think we got them at about an eight cap on lot rent only. We're going to be getting those refinanced, you know, pull, pull some money out, make some subsequent acquisitions. But we've also passed on a lot of deals. Uh, we've structured seller carry at 5% fixed for 10 years on one of wow. those deals. We have also assumed some CMBS financing with about another five years to run fixed at five and a half. So we've structured some cheap debts, either structured or assumed it. We've uh, had no debt, again, just pay all cash for a couple of those properties while we improve them and find other things to buy. But yeah, our, our deal 
uh, our rate of acquisitions has uh, slowed since, say, three years ago. So it's a, a more popular business than ever, more buyers than ever, and uh, the cost of capital that on the debt side is is higher than ever. So, yeah, no, that's great feedback. Thank you for that. And I think that's a recurring theme: is you know more seller financing, trying to ask for that, assuming debt. You know, I've never actually done that where you assume a loan. Is that like you know pulling your hair out? You know, fingernails on a on a on a chalkboard. Oh, that was insane. It was CMBS that we assumed. Now, I have I know a little bit about arranging CMBS debt. I've probably arranged somewhere, borrowed something over, I think, 40, 45 million worth of CMBS. And wow. uh, when you structure it, it's, it's never easy, but you can get it done in about six weeks. Everybody's kind of incented mm-hmm. to get a deal done because your mortgage broker is getting uh, their commission on arranging the debt. When you assume uh, debt, there, there's no mortgage broker payout. It's just the big bureaucracy. The, the debt's already been sold over to a mortgage servicer. Most of our debt, unfortunately, is with either Wells Fargo or PNC, Midland, both of which are massive bureaucracies, but don't get me up on that soapbox. <laughs> Long story short, you're dealing with an attorney who bills by the hour and has no real incentive to actually, you know, get the deal done. So that was so it was slow. Plus, then they require a more thorough, I think, resume and background check on me than when I'm just initiating the debt. And they wanted a more thorough, like, competitive summary uh, of like all the parks, you know, within ten or fifteen miles, which is not something mm-hmm. that I believe anybody has ever asked for when we initiate brand new CMBS. Uh, It seems to me there was another thing or two, some additional opinions, legal opinions. Anyway, it took six months to assume the debt. Again, we typically can structure the debt in six weeks, roughly, when it's brand new. So it was an extremely lengthy process. Everybody was saying, well, it'll probably take three months, could be four. We pushed it as hard, really, as we could. And, And they would come back, you know, with additional inane requests for for a le- you know legal opinions and uh, anyway but yeah it was it was about 6 months and we were we were pushing it pretty hard so wow. your listeners should should know that if it's below market debt that's you know it, it might be worth sticking around for 6 months sure. to get below market debt but it is a pain in in the butt yeah painful yeah no that's that's fantastic and the seller was willing to you know kind of allow that 6 month period <laughs> which is like <laughs> You yeah, know, sorry. Um, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I think we had in our contract just that, you know, that, that we had, I don't know what, it, you know, the sort of standard 30 days for diligence. And then it was basically just and however much longer it takes to get the debt assumed. Hmm. So the seller, I mean, there wasn't any bad blood, but yeah, the seller couldn't just say, oh, assuming CMBS has taken more than six weeks, I'm out of here. It was kind of like, we're in it together for the duration. We're married, <laughs> at least for six <laughs> months, while we both figure out how to assume transfer the debt from you to me. Anyway, but we got though. it done. Yeah, that's smart that you put that in the contract and you, you know, you you figured it that way. Yeah. And then you know the properties have some upside again. I think we got those around an eight cap on uh lot rent only. There's some upside. So this was last year. There's still sort of four some odd years of 
uh, runway in the debt. So long story short, this will effectively give us a chance to refi kind of partway through our 10-year partnership. It'll hit right at about the five-year mark. Presumably, we will have improved the property values and we'll be able to, well, of course, have to have to pay off that debt. We'll, I suspect, be able to, to borrow out some additional money and uh, either make a subsequent acquisition or pay that money back to our limiteds uh, roughly at the five-year mark. So that's a little a little new for us. Most all of our other debt is CMBS. It runs 10 years. Our funds run 10 years. So for most of our other debt, there isn't really an opportunity to refi and, and get some cash back to LPs before the fund matures. But again, that was another reason, in addition to the low interest rate, that was another reason we wanted to stick around for six months and go through the brain damage of assuming the CMBS financing. So I'm curious, you know, I've only done one CMBS refi into a CMBS loan. I'm curious sure. why you have, you know, such a heavy allocation to CMBS versus agency debt. So the agencies have standards. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's it. I'm a, I'm a little tongue in cheek, but that's not entirely inaccurate. We do always try and get agency debt. We've looked a little bit about trying to get uh, the really cheap debt, which is direct from an insurance company. But frankly, most of what we buy has some hair on it some combination of higher than 20% vacancy and or certainly with park-owned homes. Between vacant and park-owned, we're over 20%. I think we have gotten a couple of quotes from the agencies. They've just been higher than CMBS has been. You know, the market's always changing, but this, mm -hmm. you know, the last time we were establishing, uh, uh, you know, creating new CMBS debt, that's the way it was. Again, generally, we're, we're buying stuff that's, you know, as we call it, value add. And often the agencies and certainly the, the life codes uh, don't want to land on anything other than really the, the most perfect of parks. So for better or for worse, you know, we're getting less than perfect parks at a, you know, less than perfect price. We, we'd rather we keep our operations in-house. So we would rather pay a lot less for a park that's got some hair on it and fix it. And then, frankly, be able to, to sell it on to a buyer at the end of the fund, you know, and, and then it's a fixed park. And then maybe that buyer can get the fancy agency or life code debt on it and, and pay us handsomely for it when it's time to exit. But basically, we roll up our sleeves, probably three quarters of our parks, again, have some higher than ideal amount of vacancy or park owned homes. So gotcha. that, that's the way we play the game. You know, obviously Sam, Sam Zell did it very differently and was buying perfect parks. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's... So I'm I'm not the most successful mobile home park guy. But that's the way we play it. We we buy the the good, the bad, and the ugly, and, and we fix it. <laughs> that's fantastic. And to, to to circle back, we were talking about like deal flow and and deal and uh, brokers sending out deals. So yeah. On LinkedIn, there's a an appraiser, Chuck Sherbeck. And he puts out like a, an MHC listing rundown. And yep. this week he went through like the top brokerage firms and how many removed listings they had. And oh. Marcus and Millichap removed four <clears throat> listings. Sunstone removed one. Capstone removed six listings. Newmark removed one. Northmark removed two. So it's just, you know, there's sellers that are just being unrealistic, I think, with, with yeah. You know, two years ago, what they thought they could get for the property, they're still trying to get those pricing and deals aren't trading, right? Right. 
never hurts to ask. I'll just mention that uh, those couple of deals where we assume the CMBS, those came from removed listings from a very well-known mobile home park brokerage firm who shall remain nameless, but they failed to get it sold at whatever they had whispered into the seller's ear that they were going to sell those at. So long story short, it was what we went back about a year later. Honestly, I had just assumed the properties had sold. Mm-hmm. I went back to the broker and said, you know, hey, I, I had heard they hadn't sold. And he sort of sheepishly said, yeah, they didn't sell. So in the interim, so I didn't circumvent the, the broker. I said, hey, if you want to, you know, get your listing, there's a commission in here for you. You had the listing. But, uh, you know, my price isn't going to be what was on the cover of the offering memorandum, but, you know, send me an update. And the seller had spent a year, you know, bumping rents and in filling, and then my price was lower. And so a year after that brokerage firm yanked that listing, I bought it. So not all sellers have unrealistic, (laughs) continued unrealistic expectations. Anyway, it's always worth going back. Uh, on those pulled listings, I would think, and just say, hey, you know, where, where can we get a deal done? So there's no panacea for finding deals, but that's just where those couple of deals happened to come from was a failed, uh, a failed, uh, a pulled listing. That's great. Yeah. There hasn't been many of those, you know, in the last <clears throat> five years, uh, they've been flying off the shelf. No, so that's no, great that you're no, able to, you know, no. get a couple of those, those wins. Jefferson, yep. Would you mind reminding our listeners of your story just briefly and and how you got into manufactured housing communities? Sure. So, you know, when I woke up from the concussion, it just seemed (laughs) like a good idea to get into the mobile home (laughs) park. Okay, I probably used that joke on podcast 33. (laughs) (laughs) So, no, I had been uh, out here. I live out here in the Bay, San Francisco Bay Area, and I had moved out after business school to do the whole dot-com thing uh, in 98. And went through the boom and the bust. You know, my stock options were, uh, we'll just say volatile <laughs> as far as what they were worth. <laughs> and I wanted to have uh, just some passive side income. And I thought initially that I would buy an apartment building. And uh, then just in being like on LoopNet and filtering for multifamily properties, and I was not looking out here in San Francisco, I knew to find cash flow, I was going to need to be looking in the greater Midwest. You know, I was looking at, you know, Lubbock, Texas and Peoria, Illinois and on and on. And I would see 99 apartment buildings that this is back in 2005 pricing, you know, apartment buildings at an eight cap and then like mobile home park at a 10 cap. And I, I thought, you know, that's absurd. I'm not buying a freaking trailer park. <laughs> I would delete the search results. And I did that again and again and kept getting hit over the head. I don't know, probably after the fifth or 10th search result, I finally thought, you know, well, gosh, I don't know, I guess mobile home parks are multifamily and would have, you know, stable side income. And if they're cheaper, I don't know, why wouldn't I buy one? So uh, then I started researching it and, you know, it clicked like, oh, compelling asset class competition is limited. Generally, the tenants do their own repair on their homes. So you have lower repair and maintenance pretty quickly. Uh, once I opened my mind to the possibility of buying a mobile home park, it, it clicked why it why it was in fact, uh, and I think still is the superior asset class uh, to apartments. So it was part plan and just part dumb luck uh, that 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 I ended up in mobile home parks. And then I bought the first park. Was still working my day job at tech. Even then, it was about another year before I left tech and started doing mobile home parks uh, full time. 
That's so fantastic. And maybe you can tell us about your portfolio now and, and kind of how, how you operate that and what that looks like. Okay. Yeah. So I bought cumulatively, as you indicated, somewhere around 43 parks. About half of those were from my earlier Park Street Partners partnership, which we've now wound down. So I've sold off approximately 22 of those. So I have right around, I think it's 21 parks right now. So we're building back up uh, basically at, at Park Avenue. So those are in, I believe, eight uh, different states, mostly the Midwest. That said, we have bought one park as far north as Fairbanks, Alaska. Wow. And we bought three parks down at the way southern tip of Texas, down near South Padre Island and Rio Grande Valley. These are winter Texan parks that are about half RV and half MH. But mostly we're in like the Dakotas, Iowa, Oklahoma, yeah, South Dakota, North Dakota, Montana now, and over into Idaho. So generally the, the greater Midwest and Ohio. That's where we've found real estate is more affordable, certainly than out here in San Francisco, where I live. And we keep all our operations in-house. So we've got a VP of operations. We've got two regional managers. We call them asset managers. And then most all the parks, there are a few that are clustered and have one manager across several that basically every park has its own on-site uh, person that, that either either lives in the community that, uh, or lives probably not more than 10 minutes away uh, to be our, our on-site community manager. And then we've got uh, now an accounting manager that we've just brought on three months ago. Uh, we've long had a bookkeeper uh, in the third world doing basic debit, credit, bookkeeping stuff, speaks English fluently. You know, he's been, he's been a great asset to the team. And then we've always had like our legal out of house. We're not big enough to really employ a, a full-time or even part-time attorney. We just deal with folks mostly kind of on a spiky basis when we buy a park and we're negotiating and we've got contract entitlement uh, easement issues. We, we have a bunch of billable hours and then that goes away until the next deal. So all in all between full and part-time, I think we're, we're at right around uh, 21 people here at Park Avenue. So on average, about one person, either full or part-time per property, again, adding up all the, the regional managers, the on-site managers, throw in a couple of finance accounting people. So that's about the size of it. Yeah. That's fantastic. And what, what would you say is the toughest hurdle, Jefferson, you know, recently, like in your mobile home park investing? Yeah, it's, uh, I would say it, it, it's been finding community managers in a couple of towns where it's proven difficult to, to do that. By name, that's been Roswell, New Mexico. Are there any good, you know, intelligent, reasonably hardworking folks in Roswell, New Mexico that want to help us build a park and expand the supply of affordable housing? Uh, please be in touch. I had a similar experience in the previous partnership down in the way southern tip of Illinois, down, near, uh, down in Carbondale, where it was just the experience was unlike anything we had had anywhere else. It just didn't matter like where we advertised, what we did, what we were willing to pay, that we just could not find like a really good, stable uh, community manager. So anyway, we're now looking to import, maybe pay to relocate somebody uh, into Roswell, New Mexico, wow. which won't be cheap, but we just 
I don't know, all the usual things that work in all the other properties and locations to find good managers just doesn't seem to work there. Anyway, so I think those, we've got a couple of properties like that where it's it's proven difficult. So generally, it's the people stuff, although the higher interest rates <laughs> haven't helped us with the, you know, haven't helped us on the acquisition side. So those are kind of uh, uh, the the twin challenges, I'd say, that, that we're dealing with right now. Yeah. Yeah, finding good on-site managers is uh, is tough to find, but if you find them, it makes your life so much easier for sure. Yeah. How has your strategy changed, if at all, Jefferson? You know, given twenty twenty three, the higher interest rates and things like, is there anything you could put your finger on that's like, hey, now we're exploring more of this, or you know, we're we're open to park owned homes now, or hey, we're looking at more you know septic or well parks, or is there anything specific you'd you know you'd say has changed? Not dramatically. We, we just find ourselves walking away from more deals. We're getting outbid on them, just given that pricing is still relatively high and hasn't really fully uh, capitulated. So that's not really a change in strategy on our part. We still buy stuff, you know, at at fair prices and that we can turn around. So there have been fewer of those. But yeah, I'd say fundamentally, uh, yeah, our strategy has not changed. For instance, we've continue to believe that we are not going to get into the rental game. That's just too too rough of a business, too difficult of a tenant base. And, uh, you know, again, I think we bought right. Uh, we don't have to do anything for a buck just to try and, you know, like meet our debt service coverage ratios. So we have decided we'll grow more slowly and we'll you know, turn away rental tenants and insist on just having folks with say 10% down who are going to do a rent to own agreement. So we're probably growing a bit slower. That's again, not specifically a change. We, we've stuck to our guns. I know some other folks have decided to start renting and more power to them, but uh, we have not made that change. So we just, maybe I'm a stick in the mud, but no, not, not, not much of our strategy has changed. Acquisition pace is slowed, but, sure. uh, but not and much is changed with our strategy. What is your, what is your buying criteria? Like what's a, you know, what's a typical deal look like? Uh, We have bought on average parks that are almost, you know, 95 pads maybe is roughly our average acquisition size. They have typically been within five miles of a super Walmart and they've been in markets where the average house price is over a hundred thousand dollars. Again, we want to weed out Rust Belt places, uh, you know, Toledo, Ohio, and Detroit, where the average house price is 60. You know, we're going to be bringing in brand new houses for 60, maybe 70. We can't compete with a site built house that's at that same price. So that's been most of it. You know, we do run test ads. Yeah, pretty much, honestly, our, our test ads have always panned out where we've been buying within five miles of a super Walmart, where the average house price is over a hundred thousand bucks. Our Montana deal that we did back in June is our smallest market to date, just a town of about 5,000 people. That's Glendive, Montana. Seems to be very healthy. It's got all, it does not have a super Walmart, but it's got all the other sort of housing dynamics. Seems like a fairly stable economy, reasonably high household income. And again, I think we bought that park right, and and we've got some upside in rents and billing for water. There is no perfect deal, but that one, despite not being within five miles of the Super Walmart, that one 
kind of has most everything else that that we look for and we felt the pricing on it you know co- compensated for, <laughs> for for the hair on the deal so totally with your going back to your test ad question mm-hmm. how many you know outreaches or leads a week are you looking for to tell if it passes the the test ad mark yeah we uh typically are putting an ad up on facebook and we generally also post on craigslist craigslist you know has been basically getting worse over the years but we do post there and we'll often get like a burner phone number you know so we can easily track the inbound calls or again just inquiries written typed message inquiries off facebook we're looking to get about 20 a month sorry 20 a week that's what qualifies as as being you know acceptable yeah no that's awesome Jefferson, what mistakes have you made in, in mobile home park investing that we could learn from? I got into the business too late. When I did get into it, I you know took too long to scale up, basically to start raising outside capital. Mm-hmm. The first couple of deals I bought were just you know my own personal savings and some bank debt, but no outside capital, no limited partners, and you know I probably could and should have uh, after doing the first deal on my own for a year. And then having at that point, you know, a short, but still a a track record, I probably should have moved more quickly to raising outside capital. Probably shouldn't have bought that first park. I do still own it. I fixed it. (laughs) But that's the one that had the sewage lagoon that went bad, even though I had in writing from the Department of Environmental Quality that it had been built to code. It had not been built to code. (laughs) So so I would... um, certainly advise any first-time buyers to not buy anything with private utility like a sewage lagoon so we've only since out of those other 40 some odd deals only ever bought one other park with a sewage lagoon we had it checked out by an independent company and it was part of a package where we would not have gotten the other better deals had we not also taken that property so again, there are very few really, really hard and fast rules. You kind of need to know the rules well enough to know when to break them. Um, but yeah, I would say I would I should not have bought uh, that first park with a sewage lagoon. But every park since then has been better. <laughs> you, know, you, you can't do worse than a park on dirt roads with a sewage lagoon. So everything is going to look like, wow, this is such an awesome deal. <laughs> anyway, so. Yeah, you don't know what you don't know, right? Since, right since then, yeah, yeah, on your first one. So, yeah. You know, if you were going to passively invest, you know, uh-huh. in like another mobile home park fund or a syndication uh-huh. or something like that, you yeah. know, what would you look for, you know, knowing what you know now and like, what would you prioritize? Like what, you know, how much yeah. time would you spend and, and kind of just, what would that look like? Yeah. You know, the things that are, I, I would look for funds that are like mine which are relatively few and far between. Uh, you know, specifically I don't charge any acquisition fees. I don't charge divestiture fees. I don't take any sort of a salary. Uh, I don't even put my cell phone bill through Park Avenue. I just get a split of profits. And we're we're 50/50 with our limiteds. That means by the way by not taking acquisition fees there's a lot more money to go into buying real estate. But I'm a big fan of alignment. When I see other funds that are like charging an acquisition fee, that means those general partners are motivated to 
put in a topping bid, pay ever more higher a price for a deal. And that means they get a higher, you know, a higher payday right up front. So I, I would not be a fan of that. I've also seen a couple other funds where their management company takes some hidden fees, for instance, rehabbing a mobile home, and their document says they can charge reasonable and customary management fees, you know, and maybe they're putting five or 10 grand into a house, but then the general partners are saying, well, I'm going to take like a $10,000 reasonable and customary fee and all that gets reported to the LPs is oh that house costs twenty thousand dollars to rehab. Well no it costs you know five or ten and the general partners pocketed 10 grand off that house. So we don't do anything like that. So I would look for another fund that again charges no fees, has great alignment with the LPs and is not you know backdooring profits uh, to the general partners. I want to see the general partners like, you know, getting paid the same day in the same way every quarter that I am. That's my worldview. That's my soapbox on <laughs> how and why I've, I've structured Park Avenue, both for better and for worse, the, the way it is. But we're we're all about alignment uh, with our investors and, and not taking fees. Yeah, that's really cool. And and how does it how does like the initial capital get paid back? Is it just 50-50 from the beginning or You know, is there like a capital event where they get their initial capital or how does that work? So the LPs all have preference to me uh, at the time of liquidation. So I'm not getting half of everything. I get half of the profits. So heaven forbid, I put a million bucks worth of investor money into a deal and I only get back a million. Well, that's all their money. It's not that I get half of that. I get half of whatever I create, half of the profits. Over the Um, 10 year Horizon. Over the 10 years. Yeah. And then we're splitting. Um, we are splitting earnings along the way, 50-50. So that's obviously just the, the net earnings, collect the rents, pay your bills, whatever's left every quarter that we split 50-50, even in advance, of course, of my limiteds getting their money back. That's profit. But again, when there's a capital event and we sell uh, or refinance a property, when there's a capital event, not earnings, but 100% of that, uh, those proceeds from a capital event have to go back uh, to the to the limited partners. Cool. So. Yeah, I don't think I've I've heard another firm you know that has that kind of structure. So that's interesting. Jefferson, what does the perfect mobile home park look like in your <laughs> eyes, and why? You know, it would be you know something larger, over 100 pads. It would be uh, likely out in the Midwest. You know, well, we're sure it would be on the beach in California, but (laughs) speaking realistically about what we might buy and and what listeners to this podcast might might be buying, you know, it's going to it's going to be something over 100 pads again in a a healthy metro within five miles of a super Walmart. And it's going to have virtually all tenant owned homes. We love to see some ability to upgrade the parks. Obviously, then we also bump rents. But if there's something to be done, maybe bringing in a jungle gym, swing set, something for the kids or doing barbecue, a barbecue pit. One of our properties, one of those winter Texan properties uh, down near South Padre, we're putting in pickleball. That seems to be all the rage. And maybe I'll get to play a little pickleball (laughs) down there. But, you know, we, we love parks when we can do stuff like that and, and build community around a pickleball court, a barbecue 
uh, pit, what what have you, and and just make it even even better for the residents and better for us and better for our, our limiteds. So, uh, and of course, we'd have to be priced, you know, reasonably. <laughs> uh, that's uh, that's our perfect deal. That is fantastic. Tell me what you've got, Andrew. We do pay referral fees. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, if I find one of those, I'm taking it down though. Uh, what like what mobile home park investing resources would you give to a new mobile home park investor looking to get started? You know, educating themselves on yep. the asset class. Do you have anywhere you would you would point them? Yeah. So a couple of thoughts. Um, certainly, I'd send them to to your podcast. I'd send them to our podcast, which is simply called Mobile Home Park Investors. I have also gone to uh, the Frank and Dave boot camp, so I would probably advise that. I would also advise that they, if they do that, and it still sounds interesting, do what I did. I then put together an unofficial advisory board of about 10 guys that all owned mobile home parks. And I would then send them deals, ask them a lot of dumb questions. I would send them deals as I was looking at them. But that helped me a lot to have people actually in the business then telling me like, this is a great deal, this is an awful deal, or this deal, I don't know. But the issue is X. Jefferson, if you can figure out X about this deal, you know, then you're going to know if it's a good one. So just having that kind of um, ad- advisory board, I think, is, is, is crucial. And I would strongly advise folks to, to net- network around and, and create their own unofficial uh, advisory board for them. That's great advice. Is there any hope that you'll start recording Mobile Home Park Investors podcast episodes again soon? Could be. I've just been so busy getting getting the new funds invested, but I might. What I've been thinking is if I do more episodes, uh, we'll probably just call it Mobile Home Park Investors 2.0. And the first uh, 120-something podcasts that we have out there, you know, cover a lot of the basics of why to get into the business. And then again, we interview some interesting folks like Jim Clayton, who sold his, you know, business to Warren Buffett for a billion dollars. But I would think the new one would focus really on operations and just be more really about how how do you hire, how do you incent employees, how do you set up your accounting systems, how do you market? Anyway, so I think that's what that's what I would focus the 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 content on if and when I can find time to get around and, and do some more of those. That'd be fantastic. I'd be a subscriber because yeah. that's, I mean, that's be, that'd be a niche. No one's talking about that. And it's, there's more and more operators out there that are scaling and getting to that level, right? 500, a thousand lots. And it's, yeah. it's tough, right? You're sacrificing cash flow to, you know, hire employees and, yeah. you know, which one do you hire first? So that'd be really awesome, Jefferson. So yeah. fingers crossed. Yeah. <laughs> Jefferson, what do you think is the biggest threat to mobile home park investing? Oh, I, I would say it's government. Uh, you know, what I've seen getting into this business back in 2007, right before the 08-09 housing crash, was that it, it survived that, that recession pretty well. And then, of course, I was in the business in a far larger way in 2020, 2021, with the COVID recession. Uh, and frankly, this business has survived both. Uh, pretty much with flying colors, certainly better than virtually any other real estate niche. Uh, but what we've seen then in in places that have, for instance, introduced um, rent control or other places where there are really excessive regulations around, you know, zoning density and, and 
you know, if you want to do anything with your park, you've got to bring it up to code. You've got to make the streets twice as wide. You've got to build a, a public park that's 25% of your land. I mean, these sorts of government regulations, which so far are more at the local than the national level, but those sorts of regulations, when and where they've occurred, have really had a detrimental effect to the business, your ability to grow, your ability to offer affordable housing. Most of these regulations effectively mean you've got to offer a mobile home at you know 50% more. We've seen some regulations in Oklahoma where you have to offer the home. The only way the economics work with the new regulations is that you raise the price right about seven times. Your $70,000 mobile home has to be about a $480,000 mobile home because of government regulation. So that's what, I don't think it will, but that's what could kill the business. That what is certainly what can slow it where you have really excessive rent control or other zoning uh, and density regulations being being brought about by government. So we're unfortunately a minority, right? Only about five or six percent of Americans live in a mobile home, uh, in a mobile home park. Uh, there might be another five in a mobile home on their own land. But you've got a, a very small tenant base and it's unfortunately they don't vote. Uh, there aren't very many of us park owners. And when you get, you know, government bureaucrats wanting to just pass legislation to help people, often the unintended consequences can be quite uh, destructive to affordable housing. So that's kind of, I think, the biggest risk is probably local uh, government regulation. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Jefferson, what's one last bit of important advice you would give an interested passive mobile home park investor before we sign off? You know, at some point you do do your homework and at some point you, you've got to just kind of jump in and, and make a decision again, whether it's to, to buy a park or to, to invest in a fund. I guess I've seen some folks out there make the mistake of analysis paralysis and they're just, you know, kind of constantly researching and there's nothing wrong with doing research on, on the space and on funds. But if you know you find yourself after years, you still don't know enough to make an investment, then you're you're probably kidding yourself a little bit. You don't you just don't want to invest, or you're afraid of taking action. So I would say don't don't get caught in analysis paralysis. Do your homework, but get that done over a couple of months or something, and then uh, pull the trigger, make an investment. It's uh, it's a pretty good business whether you uh, own a park directly or whether you choose to invest in a fund it's a pretty good business to be in. So that's yeah, my the fundamentals are there for sure. Yeah. Jefferson, yeah. thank you so much for coming on the show. If any of our mm -hmm. listeners would like to get a hold of you, what would be the best way for them to do so? Yeah, just uh, drop by our website. It's parkavenuepartners.com. At the top center of the website is a button that simply says, click here to join our mailing list. So please do that. We don't sell our mailing list. Uh, and honestly, I don't send out anywhere near as many emails as I should. That's probably only five a year or something, but it'll keep people up to date on the parks that we're acquiring uh, and then get them. Um, they'll be notified about our upcoming funds. So just click that, join our mailing list. And then I believe down at the bottom of that page is both our phone number uh, and also just an intake form. If somebody wants to reach me, they can just type in their name, email address, write in a question and click send. And that, that comes right to me. So I'm not, not too hard to find parkavenuepartners.com. Awesome. Jefferson. Thanks again for coming on the show. 
Okay, Andrew, thanks for having me. We'll see you in another three years, hopefully sooner. <laughs> Sounds great. That's it for today, folks. Thank you so much for tuning in. Would you like to see mobile home park value add projects in progress? If so, follow us on Instagram at Passive MHP Investing for photos and awesome videos from our recent mobile home park acquisitions. Once again, that's at Passive MHP Investing on Instagram. See you there.